As they take their seat, I want to invite you to the book of Mark, chapter 3. I want to talk to you about Mark 20, 21, and 22. We're going into a holiday season. We're going into a season of sacrifice. We're going into a season of uh, people being so wound up and excited about the holidays, and yet at the same time, there are going to be people that are struggling to know that God loves them, cares about them, is interested in them, and things like that, because for some reason, as human beings, we are always willing to see the negative, and we listen to the positive, and we say, well, you just said that. I cannot tell you how many times I have looked upon my own daughters and said to them, you are so beautiful. And they say, Papa, you're supposed to say that. And it's like, no, I'm not. I mean, I am, but it's like, you're beautiful. You're amazing. And they won't hear it from me. They'll hear it from somebody else. But all it takes is a criticism or a critique, and suddenly they're eaten up inside. And it's, 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 our human be- it's our human nature. It's the difficulty of what it means to walk on this earth where everybody is, with all due respect, our hearts are only evil all the time. That's a direct quote from Scripture, okay? I'm not being mean to you. And so for some reason, we find it easier to be a little mean to people than we do to love people the manner in the manner in which we were loved. But I want to look at this right here, and I want to talk about some of this, and I'm just going to shoot you straight, okay? Uh, but at the same time, I'm going to title this sermon, Don't Blame Me, God Did It. Okay? Don't blame me. And I say that because my calling to be a pastor, to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, is stick to the book. I, I, if I get another t-shirt, it's going to say stick to the book. Okay? I only care what does the Bible say about what the Bible says. Not what does one verse say. What does the Bible say about what the Bible says? And what does that mean for us moving forward in a relationship with God who created us? Well, let's talk about family. We're going into the holiday season. A lot of it is revolving around family, our celebrations. Um, when we ask, I asked some little children this morning, what were they looking forward to? And um, some of them are going to Nani's house because they're going to be with family and eat mashed potatoes and gravy, okay? And they're so excited for Thanksgiving. That's our holiday season. It's, uh, it's, it's about family. So I want to talk about family. Also, we're going into a sermon series, and it's going to be entitled Hoping for Mary. An M-E-R-R-Y, okay? Yes, it's about Mary, it's about Joseph, it's about baby Jesus. But let's just talk about going into Christmas, going into the holiday season. And so many people are going, oh, I dread it because of this, or I dread it because of that. And so we go in hoping for Mary. We want the Merry Christmas part of Merry Christmas. And so um, this is all to set this up. I told you a couple of weeks ago we would be speaking on um, family. We'd be doing child dedications today. So that's what I'm talking about today. And I want to go to Mark chapter 3, if you're there. If not, it's going to show up on the screen here. And I'm just going to read it to you. Jesus has been up on a mountain. He's surrounded by his uh, disciples. Um, and don't think 12 at that point. He's surrounded by his disciples. He calls them all together. And he picks 12 of them out of the bunch and says, you're going to be the apostles. What we know is the apostles. You're going to be the disciples. Apostle means sent out one. Okay? So sometimes we have to wrestle with that theologically, what it means. Because sometimes people make it a little bigger than it needs to be. All right? But it, he, he called and he selected the 12. We have the appointing of the 12. And then we have this. Comes down off that mountain and the scripture says, And then Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered. So that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. For they said, He's out of his mind. And then the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem, they only came down because they went up because Jerusalem sets high geographically, we call it a mountain but a hill, um, okay, 
Um, so they came down from Jerusalem and said, he's possessed by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, and he is driving, driving out demons. And those are the scriptures that I want to share with you, okay? That right there is the actual setup to everything I want to share with you about family. Because let's, let's, let's just see what's going on. We've got Jesus. He's appointed 12 apostles. They're going to follow him around. He's going to pour into their lives. And as he's done that, he's come down off the mountain and he's going into somebody's house. I assume that he knows, but he's anticipating, he's anticipating that they're going to eat. And the way I know this is because the, the issue became he couldn't even eat. See? So he walks into the house, he sits down, his, the 12 guys are there, they've been picked, they're all excited, we're the team, we're going to do it, okay? Um, and all of a sudden people start flooding into the house, flooding around the house, um, it starts getting so crowded that they cannot even eat. And they're in an area where his family is, and so his family decides they're going to come take charge of him. And I love this, because his family, at this point right now, it would appear that they don't believe he's the Son of God. And I don't know where Mary is on this. Maybe she just got hijacked by her children, you know, because she had other children. And so you know how it is when you get a little older and your children start dragging you around, whether you like it or not. Okay, and so Mary gets drugged to this house as well, but they've come to take charge of Jesus. I love that, take charge. What does it mean to take charge of your older brother or sister? I'm, we're going to take charge of that. We're taking charge of him. It's like, what? They're going to go take charge of him because he's in there with all those guys. It's so crowded, he can't even eat, and um, he's out of his mind. He's, he's, he's beside himself just a little bit. Now, let's just be honest. When we talk about family, all of us have somebody in our family who's a, a cousin Eddie. You know what I'm talking about when I say that, right? You know who's Cousin Eddie, okay? Christmas vacation. All right, Cousin Eddie. We all have a Cousin Eddie. We all have that one, you know, it's like, oh, there's Aunt Clara, you know, she's got like 47 cats. Um, it's like, yeah, but she's going to be a lot of fun, but don't listen to everything she says, okay? You know, we've all got people like that in our lives, right? Some of you are in here going, no, we don't have anybody like that. That's because it's you. <laughs> You know, you're sitting there going, no, we don't have any crazy people in our family. Yeah, well, when you're not around, they're talking about you. I just need you to know that, okay? You're the crazy one. Um, probably not, but uh, there's a chance, all right? So we're looking at this, and we're saying Jesus was that guy. They came, and they're just like, hey, he is out of his mind. How did you get from, hey, Joseph and I didn't have sex, this baby is the son of God, to... Uh, he thinks he's the son of God. We got to go get him out of that house. On the other hand, what would it take for you to convince your siblings that you were the son or daughter of God and you came? I mean, do you understand? See where that goes? It's like, whatever, sit down and shut up. You know, it's like everybody jump on him and beat him up one more time. We're sick and tired of hearing about this. You know, it's like, you know how kids are in the house. But at some point, there were these discussions that we never talk about or think about when we read the Scripture. It's like, were they just like building blocks? And Jesus was just sitting there going, block, block, block. And everybody else had to physically do it. You know, and they're like, well, maybe he is. No, he's not. Don't give him an idea. You make his head big. Don't do Somewhere in there, his, his family said, this guy's whack. Go get him. Bring him home. And so that's the circumstance. That's what is going up in here. Can you imagine growing up in Jesus' community as one of his siblings? Yeah. Hey, isn't your brother? Yeah, I don't want to hear about it. Don't talk to me about my brother. Don't do that. Don't want to hear about it. But that's what's going on. I remember we lived in western Oklahoma. We lived in a town. Um, actually, we lived outside of town, but we, the, the town was 500 people. Um, my oldest daughter actually graduated with you know, a whole class of 41 people. 
That's how big her graduating class was. My wife says she went into the coffee shop one time, um, Miller's Gas and Grub. Um, she went in there one time, and all the old men were sitting around having coffee and eating you know, bacon and egg sandwiches, okay? Um, and they're probably going to die young at you know, 85 or 90 because they're eating all that grease and stuff, but that's how they lived out there. And she said, I, I heard them talking about our son. I said, what were they saying? He's like a fifth or sixth grader at this time. Like, yeah, have you seen that wood kid? You know, he's a pretty good-sized boy. Uh, when he finally gets to high school, and now he's going to play some football. We're going to be a team then because if you take that wood kid and you take this kid and you take this kid, they're talking about middle schoolers. And they're, they're talking about a football team in high school, and they're whispering. But can you imagine if you're at the Miller Grass and Grub, and all of a sudden Jesus walked in, and you're like, there's that kid, thinks he's the son of God right there. You heard about his mama said he's a... I mean, you see what's going on. It's just like, what did it really look like for Jesus to walk on this earth, earth in community and be a member of a family? And Jesus' family, they thought he was outside of his mind. I don't know if they thought he was outside of his mind because he went into the crowded house, because he took 12 disciples, I don't know if it's, or apostles, I don't know if it's because they saw him up on a mountain with all the people, but somewhere in here, his family actually thought he was outside of his mind. And I know that because the scripture says they thought he was outside of his mind. And I tend to believe it when I read it. And so there we are. And so as I look at this thing, I want to share these things with you about family before I ask you bigger questions. This whole family thing is God's plan. This whole family thing, it's from God. It it just is straight up. It's not our plan. It's not man's plan. It's not Moses' plan who wrote the book of Genesis. It is the plan of God, and it is God's only plan. I'm going to create families. I'm going to do this. You can call them nuclear and say that that term just is from the 20th century. I'm okay with that. That's fine. But the concept of the understanding of nuclear family is from Genesis. That's where it comes we're going to do this, we're going to do this, and we're going to do it. First God made a man, Adam. Then God made Eve. God's plan was one man, one woman. It's simple, it's ancient, and marriage is supposed to represent the our relationship to God. So as two people come together, and it's a little bit on my mind since, you know, yesterday my youngest son got married. It's there. But as two people come together, this marriage is so important to God because it is supposed to be a reflection of this relationship like this. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. And that's the covenant that was made yesterday. That's the covenant that God makes with us. That's why it is so important. So we look at this thing, and marriage is often used as a metaphor of our relationship to God in heaven. In Revelation, Jesus is referred to as the groom. We are referred to as the bride. We're going to have the wedding feast of the Lamb. In uh, Revelation 19.20, uh, these things are going on. In, uh, um, in uh, Matthew 24 and 25, we have the calling of the sheep and the goats, and then we have the great big wedding that everybody's been invited to. See, we have these metaphors that are going on. And I love that God ordained that this is the way it is supposed to be. Uh, I also love the scripture in Genesis chapter 1 that gives us just the tiniest little insight into heaven and into God. We can't describe God. We don't know God any more than he reveals himself to us. But look what it says. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, so that they may, and this is what they're supposed to do. This is what human beings are supposed to do. So that they may rule over the fish of the sea. It is a God thing to own a fishing pole. I'm just telling you, it says right there. If you need to convince a spouse anymore, it is in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Okay? Rule over the fish of the sea. It's not going to happen if you do not go fishing in the sea. 
All right? Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. But look what God said. He said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kind. But he said, let us create man in our image. See what he did there? He built something up and then said, now let the land produce creatures and all these things. He said, but we are going to make man in our image. And so we have this picture um, going on. And he says, we created man in our likeness and let them rule. Let them rule. Now, yesterday I used this in a message. I had it all planned out way before that to use here. And it says um, in the book of Ephesians where we recognize Paul saying your marriage should be an expression of what it looks like to be in a relationship with God. In the book of Ephesians chapter 5 it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now we all need the circle, submit to one another. But it goes on to say, wives, submit, to your, um, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is a savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so wives should also submit to their husbands in everything. Now look at here, I want you to underline this. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. Clearly, marriage was God's plan. The call here is submit to one another. That means yield. It does not mean grovel. Okay? It means give, don't take. It means stand next to each other, not behind each other. And I always come to this, and I'm, I'm, I'm blown away by the times that, that I hear, um, especially young married men, they will say, well, Scripture says that I'm in charge, and so, you know, you need, it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's back up, submit to one another. Wives, submit to your husband. That's a role, that's a role, not a, not a value, okay? But there's something here that men totally ignore. How did Christ... How did he do it? How did he love the church? Let me tell you something, guys. He got off the throne. He didn't just sit up there and say, because I said so. He got off the throne, made himself, did not think equality with God was something to be grasped, but got off the throne, came to earth, and took on a, a terrible form, even though he made it and called it good. Terrible form and then got on his knees and washed our feet. That's the role of a husband, not a dictator. A leader who leads by serving and says, come, follow me. I don't want to minimize the role of a husband in a marriage relationship, but I don't want to make it something that it's not either. Christ came to show us what servanthood looks like. And this scripture says, that's the husband's role, okay? Second thing I want to share with you real quick is God's image is whole when it is seen in the context of one man and one woman. In a man, we see, uh, generally speaking, generally, I don't need any emails, generally speaking, we see a warrior, a provider, a defender, a leader, and a lover. That's a man. He's going to protect, he's going to fight, he's going to slay, kill, collect, get, 
gather, whatever it is, he's going to do it to protect his family, to take care of his family, to prove his love to his wife, to do all the things. And we see the picture of God as a warrior. We see the picture of God as a provider. We see the picture of God as a hunter who's looking for and wanting to protect his children. But we also see the picture of God when it says, as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And so we see God compassionate. We see him as a nurturer. We see him as a carrier of life. We see him as a helper. And we see him as a lover. And those are the things that we ascribe to women. So when you see a man and a woman come together, you see a a more true picture of God. Together. Not as individuals, but together. But in order to accomplish this, because he told them, Last thing I want to share with you before I get into what I want to ask you is God said, be fruitful and multiply. And so when we see this couple, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth and subdue it. Now listen, I'm not trying to be political. I just need to share with you what the scripture says. And I won't back down from it. It says in order to accomplish this, we can see very quickly, this is where my relationship to God was, it will only happen with one man, one woman. Not two women, not two men. You cannot fulfill the specific command of God to go forward, be fruitful, and multiply in any other relation, relationship other than this one. This is what God said. I didn't write this. I'm telling you what it said. Let me say this. This is not a rock for Christian people to throw at people. And we need to get a hold of that too. Because we are all sinners. God loves us, but he is still saying, come away from your sin. Regardless of what kind it is. And so we have got to be careful not to pick and choose theology or scriptures to throw as rocks. The gospel of Jesus Christ is an invitation, an invitation to come into a relationship with God away from this world and what the devil has done to our relationship to God. And so we recognize that be fruitful and multiply has to happen according to the plan that God set down. And unapologetically, I can only preach what the the Scripture says. And I'm not looking for the, the secret meaning of, I think the Scripture is fairly clear, just fairly, I mean, on whatever it is, I think the Scripture is fairly clear. I don't think you have to, I mean, God wrote a book called Revelation. He's not hiding anything. He's trying to make it clear. The scripture, Jesus tells us, accept it as a child. What does that mean for you and I? So, as we long for more of God, it has to be about you and I being willing to sacrifice. We have to sacrifice, well, this is where I am, who I am, what I am. This is what I have, it's mine, I earned it. We have to sacrifice these things. I'm really big on the idea that I would not accept or encourage anybody to, excuse me, I would not Um, inspire or uh, encourage anybody to accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior. I just won't do it. Okay? Stay with me for just a split second. I will encourage you to surrender to Him as your Lord and Savior because that's the actual invitation from heaven. We recognize what Christ did on the cross when He died for us, and so our invitation is to sacrifice our lives by surrendering our will, by surrendering our wants, by surrendering our rebellion, by surrendering, and that word surrender means to continue to sacrifice who and what we are. 
Not because everybody's horrible but me, but rather because God has a life for you that you never dreamed of, but it means coming away from whatever it is particularly that you wrestle with. Whatever it is that tempts you. And so we need to recognize that this is what Jesus is doing. And so as we gather together, we sacrifice things like our right to be right. Our right to a lot of things. When I was talking to the couple last night, your, your right to be single. You have to sacrifice your right to be single if you're going to be married. You have to. You have to give it up. You're not gonna, you cannot live single in the same house and be married. You can't do it. It's called cohabitating. To be married is to become one, not just to have sex, but to become one. The day came when I woke up one morning and I looked at the woman on the pillow next to me, and it was my wife. But I looked looked over there and I thought, am I looking at her or am I looking at me? Because I had seen that face every morning for about 35 years. And I think this is what it means to be one, is that you lose the idea that it's just me, it's we. And you have to sacrifice that to get there. You have to sacrifice the me part. But a lot of people don't want to submit to one another. But that's what it's going to mean for us to be family, is to yield and sacrifice for one another. As families, you do that. I've never seen a better picture of what this looks like of sacrificing for each other than these two pictures that I collected. Um, This one right here is an amazing photograph. It's the wildebeest migration in Africa. It takes place on the continent of Africa. You know Africa's not a country, right? It's a continent. There are countries on the African continent, but we always say, you know in Africa, where? Where in Africa? Botswana? Zimbabwe? Okay, so in central, on the central African continent, there is a migration that takes place absolutely every year, and it's wildebeest. Some of you might know them as news. G-N-U. They're news. Or they're wildebeest. Most of us know them as wildebeest. There's approximately, they say, 1.5 million wildebeests every single year that during this period of time takes this journey. And that's where you see them trying to cross the river and out, and crocodiles get them, and they're trying to get across the, the plains, and, you know, the lion, you see the lion tearing one down, and it's all that. And I don't know what you see about this picture, but in my mind, this picture represents the church. It does. Because we live our lives as a church totally disconnected, but we're running with each other. And the crazy thing about that picture is right there, 50,000 of those wildebeests could turn around and stomp that lion to death. Those are not fragile horns on their head. They could gore and mutilate that lion and that lioness and take turns doing it. You know, Peter said that the enemy is a roaring lion seeking whom he may desire. And that is the perfect picture of it. And he's taken one down. And everybody else is like, sorry, buddy. You're on your own. Hey, Scott, you should have kept up. It's It's the old joke. It's like, I don't have to run faster than the bear. I have to run faster than you. And that's what's going on. At any given moment, they can turn around and trample that lion to death, and yet they're not doing it because they're each seeking their own. I only need to worry about me. Families don't do that. Check this picture out. On the other hand, having been to Zimbabwe and absolutely enjoyed this, 
Some of you um, have been out hunting maybe yesterday and maybe this morning. Those of you that are out hunting and watching this on your cell phone because there's no deer, you're going to burn in hell, okay? Or you're at least not going to get a deer until after 1 o'clock. You should have come to church. That being said, we were driving around Zimbabwe, and uh, all of a sudden, you know, the person driving us around came to a stop, and we were just, you know, we just left town. We were just driving. And then, and I said, what are we doing? He's like, oh, the elephants are coming. I said, what? He goes, yeah. I said, are we on a park? He said, no. This is just every day. You got to wait for the elephants to cross. Like we wait on deer. Like, like a raccoon ran in the road. Like a nine million pound raccoon just ran across the road. You know, wait a minute. Let them run across there. And I don't know if you know anything about elephants, but they are wicked dangerous. They are very dangerous. Don't get out of your car. And like, it's so cute. Some of you women that go on a women's trip and you're like, yeah, we saw bears. We chased them down the road and took pictures of them. You're not going to last very long. You're going to be like Scott that got caught. You know what I'm saying? But this is, believe it or not, that is actually a picture of an elephant giving birth. Well, where is it, Joe? It's in the middle. You know why it's in the middle? Because elephants are a family and they protect the most vulnerable member. They're not going to march across uh, the mid-African continent in a great big giant herd and let the lions have one. When the lions come after them, and they will come after them, they will stomp them to death. They will tusk them to death. Um, I've seen an elephant pick one up and sling a lion. They'll do it. And what they've got is the mama elephant in the middle of the crowd is having her baby, and she is vulnerable, and the baby is even more vulnerable. And that is hands down the most beautiful picture of what the church should be doing. For the weakest, most struggling, maybe even the most sinful member. Because they're trapped in an addiction of some sort. This is where we stop judging people and we start feeding people. This is where we start putting our arms around people. This is where we start making sure that nobody can come after them. And this is the picture, I believe, of what we're looking for. Let me march down through this. Family sticks together. Nowhere have I seen that more than in Kentucky. I'm not from Kentucky. Blood is thick in Kentucky. At the wedding yesterday, we married into a Kentucky family. I'm just telling you, blood is thick in Kentucky. And they kept saying it to me. Blood is thick in Kentucky. And I thought, what are they trying? Are they going to kill me? It's like... No, we're kin. You know what it means to be kin in Kentucky, don't you? It's like, we don't care if you punched us in the face. If anybody comes at you, it's Hatfields and McCoy. Okay? It's Martin and Tolliver. Okay? It's French and Eversol. It's the Higgin-Callaghan-Cockrell feud. I went down and through and looked at all the feuds in Kentucky. Oh, boy. Blood is thick in Kentucky. They take your pig, shoot them. That's how that Hatfield-McCoy thing is said to have started. I know there was a Romeo and Juliet in there somewhere, but that wasn't the thing that started it. Okay, and the feds got involved when one family shot three boys from the other family, tied them to a tree. It got ugly, and there it is, because family sticks together. You're going into the holiday. Number two, family works it out. 
family works it out. We can bump heads. We can knock heads. Let me just say this. This morning I came in and I thought this, and so I wrote it down because I thought it at least made me look a little smart. Okay? Deathbeds are made for goodbyes, not making amends. So live your life ready so you don't have to get ready. When somebody dies, people show up at the funeral and say, oh, you know, I, I just missed the chance to say this to her. And it's like, why? The Scripture tells us to owe man nothing except that we should love them and have grace for them. That should be the debt that we owe people. So live your life that way. Chuck Swindoll said, live ready so you don't have to get ready. Very powerful thing. Deathbeds are made for goodbyes, not for making amends. And so hang on to that. 1 Thessalonians says, says that you know very well the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Straight up, like a thief in the night. So we have to live ready. We have to do it. You don't know the day, the time, or the hour that God is coming for you. And then the last thing here that I want to share with you is heading into the holidays. Family's family even when they're not. <laughs> I've had people go, I just wish that wasn't my sister, that wasn't my aunt, that wasn't my uncle, that wasn't my brother. It's like, yeah, we've all been there. You can wish that all you want. But it's that blood that connects you. Somebody once said in a meme, you know, we don't get to pick our families, but the thing that I think is really funny is you can't get rid of me now. It's like, yeah, a lot of truth to that. We've been adopted into the family of God. We're family. And the book of Hebrews says, but both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers or sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the assembly, and I will sing your praises. And I love what John says in the book of 1 John, led by the Holy Spirit. He says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God and that is what we are. When you see that little child wrap his arms around my neck and squeeze as hard as he can, you need to hear God say, I love you. God is not mad at us. Jesus came down here to love us because love is a verb, not an adjective that describes a feeling. My son married a beautiful young lady yesterday, and, and he might say, we're in love, and I will say, no, you're not. You're in lust with each other, and it's a good kind. I don't have a problem with that. But love is what happened when God got up on that cross. That's love. Whenever you hear the word love, God loved, so he, how did he act? What did he physically do? He gave. He gave his only son. He does not have anything else to give to show you how much he loves you. Nothing. That one act made us family if we will accept it. And as a church family, we don't quit on each other. We don't give up on each other. We don't walk out on each other. We work it out. We deal with it. We recognize that we're different. Everybody doesn't have to think the same. Otherwise, as Billy Graham's wife said, There'd be no use for one of us. If me and Billy thought the same and believed the same, there'd be no need for one of us. That's Billy Graham's wife. Wow. As you go into the holidays, I want to encourage you. 
Are you going to be a wildebeest? Or are you going to be an elephant? Are you going to be a family that runs and everybody's on their own? Or are you a family that protects and circles and provides and encourages and pours into, does a part? In each case, they both faced a roaring lion. But in one case, somebody gets eaten. In the other case, everybody gets protected. We have a season of outreach coming, a season of sacrifice, a season of celebrating, a season of holy reflection. So I want to encourage you to plan your family time intentionally. Be super intentional about it. Set up boundaries and priorities for your gatherings so that you can find hope in this season. And then do yourself a favor and factor in some rest. Some, it's okay to put up my feet and watch football. Some, it's okay to sleep too long. You know, one of the most godly things Jesus did was take a nap. So next time you're taking a nap and somebody's hollering at you to say, I'm being scriptural. I'm trying to get spiritual in here. Taking a nap. There's nothing wrong with that. But I believe that God is saying we need to be family. And we can do a better job as Christian people, regardless of what church you go to. We can do a better job of loving people, especially those of the household of faith. Especially, the scripture will say that. These people are up here again. If you wished you would have come forward to be prayed over when I started this message, they're still here for you. If there's something else going on in your life that is a weight, I feel like somebody's carrying a weight on their back that feels too big. Can we just pray for you? If the Holy Spirit's telling me that that's what's going on in your life, can you just have the courage to say, yeah, I need that today. Let's pray. Fathers, we come before you right now. We thank you and praise you for the day that you've given to us and the blessing of what it means to be right here. We ask and pray that you continue to be near to us and encourage us and inspire us, but change us, God. Wreck our lives and then put them back together in such a manner that we never imagined. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. If there is something that you would like prayer for, we're going to stand up. That's your cue. Stand up. And we're going to sing one song. And while we're singing, if you would like prayer, just come up here and these people would love to pray for you this morning.